On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're in therapy with Uzo Aduba in the return of In Treatment on Sky Atlantic, heading back to 1981 for Steve McQueen's new documentary Uprising on BBC One, and finally breaking out the buttery biscuits and getting back on the pitch as our mustachioed morale officer Ted Lasso returns to Richmond FC for season two on Apple. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that has wholeheartedly embraced the football, albeit a week too late. Uh, but before we get into that, I am joined by my two co-hosts, among them a man whose underhanded tactical voting in our soon-to-be-published half-year best shows list <laughs> criminally denied Bosch its rightful place on that list. It's Boyd Hilton. <laughs> I'll trade you uh, Bosch for Alan Partridge. <laughs> never. Never. Okay. Also joining us is a woman who has finally expanded her viewing horizons this week when she started watching The Leftovers at last. And to demonstrate just how much she clearly loved that show, our very own Terry White joined the guilty remnant on Friday when, and this is absolutely true, she lost her voice and couldn't record the podcast, so we're doing it now on Monday morning instead. She sits opposite me now, dressed all in white and furiously sucking on a Morley cigarette. It's Terry White. Hello, Terry. It was a very uh, odd coincidence that after a, a week of torturing myself with with uh, that show I did in fact lose my voice and there was a bit where I was I was talking to somebody and they couldn't understand me I wrote down and held the piece of paper up and I was like life truly is imitating art let's get straight into this so you threw a curveball didn't you you were supposed to watch Peaky Blinders but never one to actually you know do what was expected you went and you've watched the leftovers instead which is excellent what did you think? You said you suffered through it. This does not bode well. So, I mean, I don't know what I was expecting, but I probably really wasn't fucking expecting this. I think I ended up watching seven episodes because mm. I can't say I enjoyed it really at all. I mean, mm. there's some amazing performances in there. Justin Theroux, I, can, I would literally watch fucking Paint a Wall hoping he had no shirt on but i'd also watch him paint a wall but it's he so, definitely have no shirt on i mean yeah harry coon's amazing like it, it it everybody in it is amazing the story is so batshit crazy and i've somehow got away with reading pretty much nothing on it so everything was a massive surprise there's an episode where one of them meets a grizzly end which is like one of the most hard to stomach things I've watched in a while and I pride myself on watching hard to stomach things. It's just so weird. And as I watch it, I feel uncomfortable and I feel a bit freaked out and I feel a bit sick and everybody in it is so fucking unhappy um, and or deranged. (laughs) But I found it strangely compelling. Like I couldn't stop watching it mainly because i still had no idea what the fuck exactly was going on with these people and there's a whole bit with live time i mean just it's like like it's just such a mental idea the whole thing take a step back imagine green light in this show like somebody coming in and pitching the show and getting it getting green lit it's just utterly utterly mad but i think i'm just going to keep watching it until it runs out so you've, have you seen the whole first series? so no i'm at the finale now Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think I think you're because I had a similar reaction actually when the first time I watched it. I think season two. I mean, I, I, I it is batshit and and that and but it, how compelling it is, even though it plunges you into the middle of this world where it doesn't where it's completely bewildering and people are doing stuff that doesn't make any sense, etc. I think season two is the real like because season two kind of 
enters a whole different they all move to a different place mm. and there's a new family and i thought season two was when it really sealed the deal for me like oh because i think there's slightly it's slightly more slightly funnier i think season two from memory i haven't rewatched really the whole thing recently and slightly more human in a way i think yeah. season two so i think you'll really i think you if you carry on watching you'll love season two and then season three just astonishing so but yeah i think those are the reactions that i had been you plunged into the middle of it but nobody explains anything so you know yeah. I, i'm not a fan of heavy-handed exposition i like to work things out myself but throw yeah. me a fucking breadcrumb or two here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh completely yeah i do think like suddenly so, so the first series is essentially tom perotta's book that's broadly speaking yeah. what it is and then it, it forges its own path when it gets to series two and three i'd love to tell you it gets less weird but that would be a massive lie mm. it really doesn't but it does get i think slightly more plot centric yeah because the first the first series is a mood piece it's all just like a meditation on grief and loss and what it does to the human psyche that's the whole series and it goes to some pretty dark places but it, it gets much more interesting i think in series two the series two prologue will blow your fucking mind i mean oh god i mean and don't even get me started on justin Theroux's dad i mean what i mean <laughs> just, and he just appears part way through and he's like I mean d- there's so many there's like obviously there's the main kind of plot but then there's just these little casual subplots I mean the boys in the Prius is it a Prius the Prius boys like the boys with the car yeah the twins are two of my yeah. favourite people ever yeah. like they, they're hilarious <laughs> yeah the levity of them honestly it's it, it, I think it would be um, I was thinking about this over the weekend I think without those weird kind of almost kind of cliche horny high school boys without those boys it would have no levity whatsoever and i think they are like a genius part of this show because just when you're thinking oh god this is pretty unbearable yeah they come in like wallies and it massively yeah. kind of lightens the mood i think there's way more levity in series two interestingly he changes the theme tune in series series so series one has that very self-important string epic theme tune right and series two it's a it's a it's a Jolt, it's a kind of jaunty country song and I think yeah it's it's really interesting and the title sequence is different it's beautiful um, and I think he kind of just realised I don't think he's like almost apologetic I just think everyone realised that they could be this could be funnier and have more levity while at the same time addressing the massive heavyweight gigantic issues that it does address there are episodes in season 2 aren't there that, that are just like a romp There's, there are romp episodes unbelievably <laughs> within the context of this set story and this world but there are there really are and like, that's why I think it there's a mystery aspect yeah. of series two which there isn't in series one because series one is fundamentally not about what happened or why it right. happened it's just about the aftermath and i think two adds not that but it adds a different sort of smaller scale of mystery to which i really like mvp of season one i have to say is Anne dowd as patty levin oh and out oh my god yeah the most just generally playing terrifying most terrifying yeah. Yeah, no. matriarchs she's very good i mean we haven't even mentioned christopher fucking eccleston oh, who's yeah, right. peak eccles peak right. eccleston in this peak eccleston his episode i mean yeah the yeah. casting yeah. is incredible isn't it yeah completely amy brenneman like amy all of brenneman, them like yeah. is just well carrie coon comes into her own i think in series two she's very good in series one but i think she gets better and better she becomes the best thing in it by country mile but I see, yes it's a very good series i'm, I'm really glad you watched this so did you give up on peaky blinders you return to Peaky Blinders? I, di- I didn't return to it yet, but that's not to say I, I shan't, and okay. I won't. Okay, that, that makes sense. I have finished my complete rewatch of Peaky Blinders. You'll be excited to hear. I got Good through all you. five series. Uh, thank you, boy. <laughs> that, that isn't what you've got to tell us about, is it? Oh, is this is this, this is going to be about uh, the event, isn't it? I yeah. did, in fact, as we come in now, a week after said event, I did 
as promised, watched the football. Um, I did spoilers talk about this a little bit on the Empire podcast last week, but uh, Hang yes, on. I watched. You took uh, you, 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 me. you yes, took a challenge. I. You were set on this very podcast to yes. a um, sister podcast that has nothing yeah. to do with television. Unbelievable! Really. I know, unbelievable. I know. Yeah, they took so all the fucking time. You. I know. I apologize for those of you who, you know, came, were expecting to hear about this first on the yeah. pilot TV yeah. podcast. And I'm sorry you've had to listen to it already. Yeah, we've got the dirty leftovers, oh. so to speak. Sorry. Of this story. So, well, that's Can I just say as well, before you, but that I read your um, review of Ted Lasso, which we're obviously going to review on here, on, on Empire Online, right? In which you, which you show a surprising level of knowledge of the football in that review. I thought, oh, I was, mean, I, I Googled all of that uh, shit. Okay. <laughs> I was like, please like, Google, what is a football <laughs> metaphor? <laughs> and I threw in lines like, oh, yes, it shows an ability to pass as yeah. well as to score, which I bet you should have punched the yeah with that one because that was a good <laughs> yeah i was, was very pleased with that. i actually at one point texted chris to say chris can you give me a football thing i'm looking for what happens when when a player gets the ball and doesn't fuck it up like what's that what's the football term for that i'm like because like in american football it's fumble like what is it in british football and he couldn't give me i was like fuck it never mind i'm gonna move on and let's just <laughs> explain chris who chris is for those people yeah. who don't on on automatically in our lives and in our this office. is of course chris you at the host of the empire podcast um <laughs> who uh who does not listen to this podcast <laughs> 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 and who who despairs at its existence? He does but, secretly. Um, he does. I bet he does. Um, but yeah, so so I did. I did watch the football, and uh, I tried to understand it. And as I mentioned on Empire, I found it a very stressful experience. Like I didn't. Uh, I didn't find it relaxing. Or honestly, I didn't find it fun either. It's not to say I wasn't engaged, but it's like. I found it, in, it gave me so much anxiety watching it. Uh, and, I, and I'm surprised by how invested I was in England winning. You know, Johnny come lately, just swooping in for the final to give a shit, you know. <laughs> yeah. But like, as I was saying, like when, when the Italians had the ball, I found it really stressful. And then oh, you'd calm when they didn't have the ball. Which was, by the way, 65% of the time. So yeah, it was quite stressful. Well, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so that was very stressful. And, then, and, I, and I, I honestly believe this. There is nothing more anxiety inducing in this world than a penalty shootout like it is like in terms of sheer sort of white knuckle tension it is off the scale even for someone here who just actively couldn't give a flying fuck about football it's just so stressful and i can only imagine the level of pressure on the people actually taking those shots or the goalkeeper like oh my god like it was properly like if you were writing a screenplay for the euros final i don't know how you would write it better than this like have england score within the first like two minutes and then try and then a live and then extra time and then penalties like it was properly well, the, well I, I can think of one better way which would be that uh, Saka, Saka scores the penalty in the fifth penalty. Well, Okay, yes. Sure, okay. But it was a downbeat. It was like an independent drama yeah, where yeah, it had yeah. a sad yeah. ending. Yeah. They weren't going for a mainstream yeah. blockbuster ending. It was a, it was a downbeat one. Yeah. Unless that is Italian, harsh. In which case I mean, it was you're fine. right. It isn't enjoyable. It is, in any way, it's incredibly stressful. That is the, This is the life of a football fan. Yeah, it's really fucking unbearable. I'm very glad I don't support football. Mm. I can be honest with you. Yeah. I don't think my nerves could take it. But imagine the highs. But imagine the highs. The highs when you, cause you, when you overcome all of those obstacles and you overcome the grinding misery and tension. Um, <laughs> and, you know... Like, imagine if Saka had scored, uh, you know, it would, it was like, it would have been the greatest moment in the history of football ever, you know, or suddenly the second greatest after the World Cup. So, yeah. it, it, so you're, like, you're kind of living for those highs, really. The highs are, can be absolutely incredible and the lows are devastating, but that is the, that is the nature of it. Yeah. But we still did um, brilliantly, right? Oh, yeah, so yeah. Bear in mind, I, I, we're I, England and, and oh, yeah. we, we don't normally get to the final of really... We, 
anything. <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah. The best in second- the men's team. Yeah, 55 years. Yeah. From, from, mm. Yeah. I mean, it was an incredible achievement all around. So basically, the end of James, you did, ex- you did enjoy is the wrong word, but you appreciated the experience of watching that football match, though, didn't you? That's what I did. Yeah. I did. I like the, like the actual game, of the, you know, the play of the game. I do feel a little bit like it's a ball going backwards on the field. There's still an element of that to it, you know, but nevertheless, I, I think it was the stakes. The mm. stakes were what sucked oh, me in. Yeah. I think if it hadn't been a final, I don't think I would have been engaged by it at all. But because there was so much oh, yeah. on the line, the drama of it swept me along. And yes, I did. I did. I was quite, I was really bummed out, properly bummed out. Really at the end. Bummed I was quite, quite, you know, which is the authentic <laughs> England supporting football experience. So I feel quite, oh, you know, yeah. uh, I, I feel, I feel one of the boys now. So that's excellent. Um, but uh, <laughs> speaking of football, I have been embracing a different kind of football this week because I finished my Peaky Blinders rewatch and I have thrown myself wholeheartedly into Friday Night Lights. Oh. I've watched the first 10 episodes of season one of Friday Night Lights and uh, and I'm enjoying it enormously. It makes me want to get my gridiron on and start watching that instead. Was it inspired by you watching the football? You needed more sport-based drama in your life. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I need more sports drama in my life. No, it's inspired by Terry because it was one of Terry's shortlisted Ooh. shows for what she was going to watch. Right. And because obviously I would grow old and die waiting for Terry to start watching it. So I decided to forge on ahead on my own. Well, I was actually considering watching that next, but now you've put me off. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got leftovers. I, I started rewatching leftovers in because in, 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 oh, Yeah. And, and I'm loving it. Yeah. I'm loving it all, all over again. It's, I think it's an incredible thing. Yeah, it is. It's it's a magnificent show. So is that is that what you've been watching this week, Boyd? Has there been anything it's, else you would like to share? It's been leftovers. Yeah. The only other thing is, um, which started last night, um, and we didn't. We should have reviewed it, but we reviewed some show that you want us to do instead, which is Baptiste. Um, Can't believe we didn't review Baptiste. I, I really what the have fuck? to. I know we really have to apologise because it's so good. It's really, really good. This is it's it's the spin off from The Missing. So there were two series of The Missing, which were great anyway, from the Williams brothers, Harry and Jack. Um, which were different stories of missing people gone missing, and the de- the detective who specialises in finding miss- missing people, Julian Baptiste, played by Chicky Cario, and now this is his second series of his own spin off show, which is basically it's kind of the same thing. They could have just carried on calling it the Missing. Frankly, I don't quite know why <laughs> they didn't, but but anyway, it's now Baptiste, and this this does all the things that they always do. Harry and Jack Williams are masters at the time at the multiple timelines, so this switches back and forth between um, events that happened um, fourteen months previously and now, in which and you can tell the difference because not only I mean they do indicate it on screen fourteen months earlier, etc., but also. Um, Baptiste has a gigantic beard, a huge, big, messy <laughs> beard. And um, more interestingly, Fiona Shaw, who is astonishing, and what, you know, Fiona Shaw is the main, the main kind of guest lead of this series, playing this woman, Emma Chambers, whose entire family, her two sons and her husband, disappear in the Hungarian mountains one day. That is the brilliant premise. Um, she is shown in a wheelchair at the beginning. And I was slightly worried when it opens with her in a wheelchair. I was thinking, no, this is, this is bad because, you know, Disabled rights actors, disabled rights actors. It's bad that they've got a non-disabled actor in a wheelchair. But then it turns out, of course, the fl- in the flashback, which months previously, she's not in a wheelchair at all. So part of the mystery is how she ends up in the wheelchair and what happens to a fucking family that's entirely disappeared in the Hungarian mountains. It is a brilliantly um, fascinating premise. And the way they use the time jump, I think they're the masters at it. It's become such a cliche. Every series, every series jumps around in time. We know it. But the way they do it, they do it the way it should be done, I think, because it adds to the whole mystery and the fascination as to what is going on as the two timelines interact, as you as you kind of toggle between them, I think it's I think it's a really kind of top level 
crime drama. I've never seen Baptiste and I've never seen The Missing. Oh, you can, oh my God, you've got, oh my a, you've got such a treat to come because they're all great. They're really, really they're good. They're amazing. Yeah. I, I'm gutted. I didn't watch um, the opener of Baptiste last night because I was working, but I have that saved for tonight. Oh, you're going to love it. And yeah. I am, um, I loved season one. But I, I'll tell you what, I finished this weekend, uh, This Way Up. Oh, yes. Ah, so did I. Yes, so did so I. Did I. <laughs> yes, we all yeah. did. Yeah. Yes. Utter, oh, my. Like, OMG. OMG. Oh, I was like, that, that cannot last episode. be the last episode. That can't be the last episode. Let's just say it's it's a life hanger. Do you know what I, I love about it? I you did the same it. in season one, to be fair. Yeah, did the same well, that's what one. I was just about to say. So that's what I yeah. love about it is she... Um, she doesn't, there's no sense. Because actually, the reason I was so surprised by it being the final episode is she does none of the things that people often do in final season episodes. Starts to neaten up certain storylines. Things start to become resolved. It finishes, <laughs> I love the fact that it essentially finishes abruptly. Like, it's just, it. And the, but that's how real life works. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, you, she, it feels like you're checking in with this character for this period of time and what happens in that time happens, but she's going to jump out again at any given moment and nothing is resolved and nothing is being wrapped up nicely. And in that way, it feels like a, a, like a snapshot of Anya's life at this point and the people mm. around her. But I just, I loved it. I felt gutted, gutted when it was done. And I feel like when it comes back, it's not like we're going to pick up where it left. It'll no. pick up like six months later like, and you'll just deal with the aftermath of it, much mm. like it did with this season. Because it does feel like you're checking in and then her life carries on and then you come back to her. But yes, it was very good. I liked it a lot. Yeah, so sad it's over. Can we talk about the finale of Loki? Without spoilers, obviously. Oh, we yeah. avoid spoilers. Yeah, Loki we should. But, but, but I think Loki lost you, didn't it, boy, did the oh final episode? Oh my God, episode. it really did, yeah. And... I've rarely had such a. I feel I've recovered now, but I did have a bit of a violent reaction towards it. I have to say, yeah, it really mm. irritated me, and I think, um, and it made me rethink. As we've been talking about on on um, WhatsApp group, it made me rethink slightly my appreciation for up until that point, and maybe think because uh, you have to think you get it's such a like you get swept up in these things, don't you? Know it's it's very exciting that Marvel, the, the MCU, has done these huge, big, epic, beautifully made, you know, lavish um, TV series using these characters that, that then connect the connective tissue to the films, etc. But I thought that last episode was such a kind of, it was, it was basically exposition, quite, you know, ex massive lengthy monologue exposition. And Loki just sitting there listening to it for about like, for like 20, 25 minutes. It felt like, you know, 40 minutes. Um, and then a kind of blur, nothingy. It just wasn't. And I, I appreciate how you, you have to avoid. You know, I, I get sick and tired of the kind of Marvel CGI fest battle endings that they that, that they often end up doing. In fact, WandaVision ended with one of those, which I didn't particularly like either. Mm. They do really have an ending issue problem, I think. Um, but the ending to this felt like. And then, all right, you announced the second season, but it felt very. I don't know. It just didn't feel like an ending at all. And it's anticlimactic, certainly. Mm. But I also thought just just the whole structure of it, the whole just plopping this guy in who we've never met before, you know, and, he and who remains. Yeah, who, who I'm sure I listen to this Empire's the spoiler special podcast. So, so it's fine for you guys, you guys who know this stuff, who read the comics, and who are absolutely <laughs> expert in it, and and have this knowledge of all of these characters in your brains, but. For any normal person watching, it's like, who the fuck is this guy that's just landed who's about to unve uh, unleash 20 minutes of exposition? It's just, it's just a bit kind of, I don't know, it feels a bit like entitled to me somehow. I don't, it feels a bit like, think of the normal viewer you know, at first. Well, we're not boy, clearly like what they're saying 
is all viewers should subscribe to the yeah. Empire Spoiler Special podcast, which you can do now at empireonline.com slash spoiler special. Seriously, it's a massive help because it explains a lot that is not explained <laughs> by watching the fucking show. Yeah, it is true. Yes, he who remains. The best thing that came out of the episode was, I think, Ben Travis has dubbed me on the Empire podcast, he who explains. So that was uh, yeah. that's nice. That's my new uh, my new moniker. Yeah. But, um, but I, yeah, I liked the last episode. I really enjoyed all the exposition. But I know what you mean. Like, I was expecting resolution. I was expecting all sorts of things. And what I actually got was none of that and a promise of a second season. So I'm very... Th- please there'll be a second season but i would also would have quite liked some answers <laughs> but the, i mean it i mean it's a touch cynical you could say right but i mean were we not expecting that i i feel mm. like the entire no i wasn't i feel like it was it was gearing towards much bigger mcu consequences and totally teeing up a second season i wasn't ex- maybe i'm i'm too cynical naturally but i wasn't expecting resolution oh okay. well normally oh. i would agree with you but i think because they made such a big deal about the one and doneness of these series like wandavision one and done falcon and winter soldier thankfully one and done and loki and i guess it makes a certain amount of sense but i was like oh okay so this is now at you know at the very least a two-parter if not you know an ongoing concern um but doing ongoing concerns requires a certain amount of kind of 4d chess doesn't it because then you are trying to sync a production schedule with events especially this particular loki which does feel like it has ramifications throughout the mcu to balance this with the movies requires feats of timing which are hard to pull off in the most reliable of times and we are not living in the most reliable of times so when movie releases are kind of all over the place like that's a balancing act that frankly makes me more stressed than watching a penalty shootout yeah but without it what i mean this is isn't this kevin feige's whole vision right is the is mm. the interplay and the kind of narrative interweaving between these, you know, size of screens for want of a better phrase. And I I think like, I, I also think obviously it's really fucking hard to pull off in a pandemic as we know the, the yeah. order in which the Disney Plus shows were rolled out was not the original order. And they're probably mm. going to have to be flexible in terms of how things go. But I think it, you know, that's, if that's Kevin Feige's ultimate kind of vision and they were seeding in Loki that there were going to be, this was going to have wider consequences, you know, multiverse consequences. Then I, I that was why I kind of think it ended the way it did. It's probably narratively unsatisfying. And to Boyd's point, I think the the, the premise has always been that these shows are great if you are a massive fan and you know the comics and you know all of the mythology you know all of the kind of backstories you understand the different versions of of what could happen and where this character's been but but the promise has always been that the more casual fan could come in without having a great deal of knowledge and enjoy it and i think that final episode stretched yeah that really for sure, mm. and you'd need somebody to explain it to you. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, I think that, I think I, my, my feeling is Kevin Feige is getting, it's just getting everyone, I, I just wish, right, here's my, I just wish they'd do a TV series embracing the nature of a TV series rather than having to queue up or tee up the next level or phase of the MCU or something. I just think there's, a, I, I just, I want to see that. I want to see them really focus on it, making it a satisfying narrative TV show. And I don't think they've done that yet. I really, I think, you know, taking in all the brilliance of and all the some incredible set pieces and some great, you know, performances and casting and all of that. I don't think they've done, I don't think they've embraced actually making a TV show yet. Um, I mean, 
you could argue WandaVision well, embraced that way. TV like nothing else. Oh, I else. mean, oh God, it started that way completely, but then in the end it ended up kind of not, and kind of just being the same, the same old, same old in the end. I think that trajectory of that show kind of fell away a bit. So I'm being, ultra, I'm being slightly, ultra, slightly I'm being ultra critical in a way, but equally I feel this felt particularly like a half of a film cobbled together and now we're waiting for the second half of the film, and I think that's a bit unsatisfying. In a, in a much higher. That's TV that's show. that's the nature of TV, right. isn't it? Well, like a series ends, TV. you wait for the next series. No, no. That is TV, surely. Well, but not. They don't often end like that. Like you know, on cliffhangers. No, no, but less of a cliffhanger, more of a kind of rambling. You know, rambling <laughs> narrative up, narrative upload. You know. <laughs> I mean, okay, that's slightly unorthodox, but no, I I I loved it, and I mean, it's about stakes, isn't it? Like if you're going to take characters from these movies, kind of, then there is going to be an intertwining of this narrative structure. Yeah. Otherwise, you're left with something like Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., which was oh. set within the universe, but live its own thing, embracing the nature of TV. It was basically a, a fucking Marvel procedural. And no, thank you very much. I know a lot of people enjoyed it. I'm not one of them. You know, weirdly, I think if they were going to do something entirely separate, Netflix had the right idea where instead of taking the global level superheroes, you take the street level superheroes, you take your Daredevils, you take Jessica Jones, and you tell smaller stories which are largely unconnected to the larger ones. Um, but I think there's still a way of doing that with, long. I still think there's yeah. a way of doing that with these characters. Isn't there a middle ground? I think yeah, there's a middle yeah, I hate ground. to be the voice of reason. No, there um, is. Yeah. Well, there's a middle ground, right? Well, yeah. Because I think the interconnectedness of it is absolutely what a however many billion dollar studio like Disney should absolutely be doing. That's the ambition and stretch. Mm. And don't, I'm, I'm not being funny, but those shows were shit, James. So, you know. yeah, you might well, No, be, no, they, yeah, they were patchy. They were patchy. First season of Daredevil was great. First season of Jessica Jones was great. Large. But actually what they're going for is, is abs- what they are what they are kind of ahead of us on, as they should be, is they anticipate that we're going to be watching TV and watching films in a much more kind of entangled way that hmm. the the weird binary divisions that existed before have pretty much and especially because of the pandemic disappeared and i think the recognition of that and the recognition that people want to see great telly they want to go and see great movies that they're not different worlds for them anymore i think that is still kind of radical and revolutionary because i don't think most people are actually recognizing that so i think that's the right ambition but i think there can there could arguably still have been a more satisfying ending to a standalone series because whether it it has a second series or not you still want it to stand by itself Right, so that, yeah, exactly. Is that not the exactly. Middle you, you've, I, I agree exactly. I don't know that's true with general TV, though, isn't it? Like, it's Mare so Beastown, common, right? Maryfield Town. Prime sure, example. but Maryfield Town's like a limited series, isn't it? It make like if it comes back, it will be a separate thing. But that's a self-contained story. I would say TV shows are rarely like that, though, aren't they? You tend to have an, an element of closure. But very regularly, everything will be open-ended, and you have no fucking idea where it's going to go. Like we talk about this way up, you know, get to the end of season two. Absolutely, every single thread is left dangling. Not a single one is tied but, up. But that, to Boyd's earlier point, you've introduced a brand new character who then yeah, basically the monologues at you. It, yeah, that's the problem. It does an entirely yeah, different the, thing than most finales exactly. you see. Yeah, it's the way they chose to 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 tee up the to use it to tee up a whole new thing that felt, you know. M- wrong-headed, shall we say to me? Can I, I just? What it was. It's yeah. fucking Assassin's Creed. Remember Assassin's Creed when they made the film of Assassin's Creed, and there's like five minutes on the end of Assassin's Creed that shouldn't be. I mean, you could argue oh, that most yeah. of that film shouldn't be there, but there's five minutes on the end that shouldn't be there. And the reason that five minutes is on the end is only explicitly to tie up the sequel. That's never coming. Yeah, but, yeah. And that, yeah. and I remember sitting in the cinema and watching that and being royally fucked off because it's like, do you know what? 
part. If I enjoy this film, you've got me for the sequel. You don't need to tag on a PS at the end. And and there were parts of the final episode that felt a little bit like that, like a a kind of a more cynical approach to teeing up season two. You can still do that without doing it necessarily in the way it was done. Exactly. My other, I didn't I just know say, I felt this strongly about this. I know. My, other, <laughs> but my other issue with it is with this whole phase, I think, of the MCU is this whole reliance on multiverses and variants of characters where there can be, there are literally th- millions of, of, of versions of timelines and millions of versions of, say, Loki and all the other characters. And it's, this is going to be the same as in Spider-Man and the fucking, you know, there's going to be all the Spider- and Batman, there's going to be all the Batman. I think this whole thing, I, I think they have a real issue with stakes in this cup of storytelling because I don't give a shit if you're if you're telling me there are millions of other Lokis why should I care about this one you've decided to focus on for this series and by the way the discussion of the timelines in the Empire spoiler special of this uh, on this show which ended brilliantly I have to say with one of you saying um well if that is the way that these timelines are working then it renders the whole Avengers Endgame moot I'm like yeah that is the fucking problem with it it renders lots of things moot if you don't whereas compared to Doctor Who right Stephen Moffat when he got into the real timey-wimey stuff of Doctor Who, he spent a long time making sure that the things that it worked, that the time elements kind of interacted with each other, time was interacted in a very clear way. And, and, or at least you had to work hard understanding the way it worked. And he worked fucking hard on trying to understand the way it would work. The, I think the way that this is dealing with timelines and all that, it feels like it's being thrown thrown at a wall and thinking, you know, I think it would all kind of just hang together. I'm not sure if it does. And I genuinely don't care much less about characters that have millions of variants of them and in, in lots of different timelines. I think that's an issue. Well, we are in danger of taking over the entirety of the sacred timeline with this conversation, Ooh. so we should probably move on from this. But I will say, <laughs> do subscribe to the Spoiler Specials and listen to that. I found out recently Tom Hiddleston subscribes to our Spoiler Specials, Amazing. which means, and apparently he not only has listened to every single one of our Loki Spoiler Specials, but that means he has been subjected to our renditions of the Marvel fanfare as well. I'm not entirely sure you how know what? I feel about He's that. He's probably listening so he understands what the fuck's going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe. Maybe that is what's happening. But join Tom Hiddleston and subscribe now. Um, Shall we move on to the listener question? I think we should. This week's listener question comes from someone called Twist and Shout on Twitter. And the question is, are there any TV opinions or tastes that someone could express on a first date that would be an automatic deal breaker for you? Brackets, I recently went on a first date where the guy had so many appalling views on TV (laughs) and film that I wondered if I should write him off. (laughs) I love this. I love that. That is so brilliant. Um, This is Pete. Can I just say this question is Pete James? So James' filter when it comes to the opposite sex is almost entirely made up of um, of subjective tastes. But when it comes to him, they're not subjective tastes, they're facts. And if you have different tastes, they're wrong. So so when you sent this question through, I was like, are you twist and shout? Oh, you yeah. Yeah, exactly. I take issue with that comment. I think you'll find I'm very respectful of other people's views, just not on podcasts. <laughs> wow. Oh, are you tough? Oh, my God. The very conceit that, you know, okay, James, I've got a hypothetical for you. You meet okay, an amazing me girl on Tinder or Hinge sure. or whatever you kids are using. <laughs> And she's, you know, smart and funny and hot. And then you're sitting down for dinner. And she says that she's obsessed with Love Island. Yeah. Go. And she hates Star Trek. 
<laughs> and she hates that Netflix. happened i i dated someone briefly who was very very into her reality tv and i was i was supportive and asked lots of questions actually weirdly i found it quite educational oh, she was God. telling me about all these different things i was like this is fascinating i have no interest no interest at all in watching these shows but i actually found it quite interesting to hear about them and uh when you made me watch what was it called the the married at first sight australia like I, I was messaging her all the way through that i was getting like the inside scoop so actually it was quite educational i was broadening my cultural horizons terry but uh no i'm never going to watch those shows let's be honest but that's, would that's you judge happening. would you judge a prospective lover <laughs> on their taste and the things that they not only the things that they liked but the things that they didn't like so like boydie says well, she hates star trek she hates star she hates marvel actually she hates yeah. all of mm. that shit mm. I think I think that would be the difference. So I don't think I would judge someone for what they like necessarily. But however, if someone had absolute contempt for all the stuff that I like, then that would probably be an issue. Like I do remember going on a date with someone who was really into films, like really into films. But I should have actually had a PhD in film. I probably should have twigged from that that our film tastes weren't going to be aligned. But uh, we went to this thing and there were all this Marvel. It was an exhibition thing and there were all this Marvel stuff there. And just the contempt dripping off oh. her for all things MCU. Oh, and like, I love uh, and we ended up and there was a there was a star wars thing and i was like oh let's have a picture with this thing and just the look that she gave me was like oh, absolutely brilliant. not oh, and i wish i, was I like, could have been a fly on the wall this is not i realize like i can date film geeks i can't date film buffs it's like you know if the first question out of your mouth is about the darden brothers then we're gonna have an issue right there <laughs> <laughs> oh my so like God. a proper appreciator of the art of film that is a no-no yeah, for you that. Uh, that, that, that is <laughs> no, hilarious but that's it it's like you know it's like by all means have your own jam whatever your kink is tv wise i'm absolutely here for it but do not piss on my chips do you know what i mean so like, anyone in, if you don't like star any, wars anyone, keep in, it anyone in what they call film twitter is is not is, yes is, yeah. fuck those guys fuck those guys that's hilarious i enjoy the fact by the way that james will have been attracted to her because she had a phd yeah uh, it's yeah. just that she had it in the wrong thing yeah, i.e. Right. the thing that he liked to know yeah. the most basically about. yeah he wants he wants a manic pixie dream girl who kind of likes normal films and yeah isn't too pretentious yeah that's what, that's that's the dream isn't it I, in answer to this question i had one of my few social interactions since um of recent times since lockdown and i met someone in a group of people and we were all chatting away and this person said at one point i can't even remember how it came up Oh, do you know what I really don't like? Um, this guy said, Alan Partridge. I've never got it. I was like, so unfunny and obvious and broad. And I was like, <laughs> I'm, and I, my heart sank. I immediately like, I cannot talk to this person ever again. That was, and that I think is my, it's possibly my, one of very few things that I cannot, I would not consider a friendship with someone who doesn't like Alan Partridge. I don't think I could even cope with that, the idea of it. Uh, Boyd, I, I don't know how to break this to you. <laughs> you do, though. I do like you, liked, you liked, I mean, you like this time when we reviewed. I remember you did. Do I, though? Yes, you did. You and would we call it a friendship? Would we though? Well, yeah, that sounds like that. Yeah, um, but uh, this explains why Boyd doesn't invite me to any of his event. you loved who the hell is that? You loved who the hell is that? I, I mean, I kind of more enjoyed it when Terry did it. But <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Martin Brennan. Yes, I'd watch you a like TV Martin show Brennan. about Martin Brennan. Yeah, yeah, um, but lots of my challenge. Oh, okay. Well, that's my main. <laughs> that's my main. Somebody example. called Martin Brennan added me on LinkedIn. Oh, then, Did you oh, reply with, who the hell is that? But, yeah, I thought that might be offensive. <laughs> no, so I was thinking about my answer to this question. Um, and my boyfriend and I um, have some crossover in, t in TV normally. 
around thrillers and around, uh, you know, Line of Duty, Unforgiven. We were both into those. Doesn't enjoy my procedurals, so I watch those alone. Um, and I was like, is there anything at all? And I don't think there is because I'm fairly like live and let live. Well adjusted. And I, pro- <laughs> and I probably think less of you, but... Mm. I wouldn't, mm. you know, he, he had no time for Mare of East Street. He thought it was depressing. Mare of East Street? Mare of East Street. It's just the cheap knockout, knockout He didn't version. like Mare of East Town. Didn't like Mare of East Town. It, mm. Like he didn't, he doesn't, every time I watch Handmaid's Tale, he's not, like he doesn't like mega depressing stuff. Oh, um, okay. He doesn't understand why no. I watch it. So, <laughs> right, you know, if we've, if we've bred a child and he <clears> fundamentally <throat> doesn't like the thing I like the most, then I think it's a bit too late in the day to be a... Uh, <laughs> to be bringing it up as an issue yeah yeah it's funny isn't it like like, i wouldn't expect someone also like i quite like watching the shows i really love on my own if i'm honest with you so if i was dating someone who didn't like you know the expanse i'd be like or the witcher like fine not problem i can watch that by myself but i i I think it's it's contempt isn't it? like we said it's like it's like you need to be sort of respectful of other people's jams like if they really like something stop saying jams jams what is this that (laughs) whatever your jam is i was was searching for a noun <laughs> are you going to stand? You, you like people who stand their jams? <laughs> yes, you have to stand a jam. Um, I, okay, look. If I was if I was saying someone and they were really into like I don't know GB News, that'd be an issue. To be fair, so yeah, I, I yeah, and I I've seen journalists that I know go on GB News, and yes. that is like that's a no no. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Is, you know what? Like that you have to exist on a spectrum in which kind of political views are tolerated and, and discussed and interrogated. They've just given Nigel Farage his own TV show after he well, was, quite. you know, no longer with LBC yeah. because of some comments. So I think it's, uh, th- there's no pretense really. They've they suspended the presenter who took the knee live on air, claiming he breached editorial standards, which editorial standards actually just say that you need to respect the, um, the actions and thoughts and opinions of others. They they put him on. They suspended him, and he's now resigned because he felt like he had no choice. Like so, I think when you've got um, when you've got a station like that, which whichever way you cut it, has been staffed deliberately to kind of inflame these culture wars they keep talking about on their over news. I I think there's a level of of immorality and irresponsibility, quite frankly. And they would find it very, very hard to have any kind of sex with somebody who's, <laughs> who's shown such flagrant disregard for both of those things. If someone that turn- seems entirely yeah. reasonable. If someone turns around and says to me, oh, do you know what? I absolutely love Piers Morgan. I think, I think yeah. equally I might have a few issues. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is an oh. interesting thing. This is an interesting thing. And I think, and I do think, you know, T- tolerance is required to a certain level, but uh, when things are strained to what I think is either bullying or hate speech or, you know, a general intolerance from, from those group of people towards other people, calling anyone who's even vaguely centrist and left-wing activist seems to be the new thing at the moment. You, you don't like racism? Left-wing activist. You want to feed hungry kids? Left-wing activist. That's where we are. Yeah, so no, no, no GB News people in my bed no none of that okay fine well twist and shout we hope that has answered your question uh do let us know whether you did go on a second date with the guy who had so many appalling views on tv and film i don't know maybe share those views with us we could always do with a giggle uh if you would like to share your question with us then do please dm it to us at pilot tv pod on twitter 
Right. Let's move on to the news. And really, I guess the news is going to be taken up by the Emmys, let's be honest. So where do we want to begin with this? Should we? I mean, we should start with the point that, thank God, I May Destroy You got loads of nominations, including the big, big ones, which, you know, considering it was snubbed for a Golden Globe, I know the Golden Globes are a joke, obviously. Um, but you never know with these things. And I think to see it, see Michaela Cole, you know, nominated for acting and for the show, and uh, I th- that was like, and fantastic. I was like absolutely overjoyed at that. And there were just like, the thing is there are eight nominees in like the big category. So like outstanding drama series, it, mm-hmm. like if you don't get in that category, The Boys is in it, Bridgerton, The Crown, The Handmaid's Tale, Lovecraft Country, of course, HBO. To see HBO, by the way, celebrating all the nominations for Lovecraft Country, a show they've axed after one season is pretty, that's that's pretty tough. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's really it underlines the pain. Well, Unbelievable. And, but, and then- I'm just going to bring it up now, but like the small acts, given what yeah. you what you said as well about the number of of, of nominations per category, the small acts, complete snub, not a single nomination, makes absolutely zero sense to me. Um, do you think it was the format that threw people? Do you I think, think so, it was yeah, that kind I of do. is it a film? I is do. it a TV? Yeah, I, I mean, but I somehow so. Hamilton is a TV show. Do you know yeah, what I mean? It's I like think, you can't have it both exactly. ways. Exactly. I think you've got things in there that are far more egregious. Um, yeah. I, I read something really interesting about the way the en- Emmys are, um, the noms are done, and basically, you know, people are asked to watch a certain amount, but there's no nobody must watch everything. So there was people questioning whether enough people had actually seen. Small acts, mm. the the kind of shows that get a lot of visibility and people are watching a lot of, there isn't any sense because I don't think and correct me if I'm Boyd wrong, but the wrong Boyd, Boyd wrong. I also am Boyd wrong. <laughs> yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, Boyd. But it isn't like so. When I've done judging before, you you are given shows you have to watch. Everybody watches all of them and then you judge. Whereas this is nominations and there's no obviously no responsibility on everybody to have watched anything so there is a sense of some enough people if enough people don't watch it in the first place then it's impossible for it to get any traction with noms because underground railroad had what one or was it two so limited series but no performance um nominations which again i just think is is absolutely crazy yeah you're right you know with all these things it's a tv tv awards judging is is a difficult thing because you know, unlike film, everyone got, everyone's got a film to watch. You know, and I've talked before about how with BAFTA, they actually you're only allowed to to talk about the one episode for each series mm. that is put up for yeah. discussion, which is a lot of people think is weird. So you have got yeah, you have got epic, you know, ten episode series, which clearly not many people or not you know in in the in the Emmy uh, voters are going to watch all of that show. And then as you say, there's plenty of shows that they won't watch at all. So it is a flawed, it's a deeply flawed system. Yeah. I do think, without excuse, I mean, things like, I mean, Small Axe is, 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 is the fact that it hasn't been nominated. I mean, and, and also it's a sin as well, pretty much snubbed. Um, I hate that word snubbed because it's not like they gather in a room and decide to snub it. Yeah. These are thousands of people voting or not voting for show. But, you know, there are, it, it is an incredible year. For example, in the limited series category, effectively, is I May Destroy You, Mayor of Easttown, Queen's Gambit, Underground Railroad, so Underground Railroad was nominated, and WandaVision. So that is a pretty, are there only five in that category? That is a pretty immense, you know, ca- category. And you could, I mean, you could see I May Destroy losing to Mary Easttown. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Um, but that is a pretty immense category. And you can, and I can almost see why other shows didn't get in. It's, cause, it's just because it's an incredible year for TV, really. I mean, to say the obvious. Mm. Uh, I, I find the Emily in Paris thing. Oh, yeah. 
surprising. I was in no way surprised to see that turn up at the Golden Globes because, I mean, it's the fucking Golden Globes. But that that kind of blew my mind that it turned up here as well. That seems an odd choice. But anyway, let's go through the major categories so outstanding comedy series blackish cobra kai hooray emily and Paris, hacks the flight attendant the kaminsky method penis or pen one five <laughs> depending on your uh, point of view and the mighty ted lasso and let's talk about ted lasso which walked away with 20 nominations my heart swelled so i think it's interesting the flight attendant is in there as a comedy is it a comedy yeah I that's mean, a good question a comedy is Emily in Paris a comedy? Well, I, I don't know. I think it's kind. It's of, a travelogue. <laughs> it's kind of supposed to be. Cobra Kai, amazing. I thought. I thought that was that. That was fantastic. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It is, yeah. It's interesting that the flight attendants in there. I think and Hacks, which Hacks is by the way, everyone in America, all the reviews of Hacks in America have been overwhelmingly positive, and it's taking an age to arrive here. I don't know when the fuck it's going to yeah. arrive here. And I get Hopefully asked that we'll every single soon. week on Twitter. <laughs> when um, is Hacks coming? I don't know. Outstanding drama series: The Boys, Hooray! Bridgerton, The Crown, The Handmaid's Tale, Lovecraft Country, The Mandalorian, which got a lot of nominations. Pose, and this is us. Are we going to go through every single category? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm no, just, we're just going through. We're going through the major just, ones, Terry. The I'm just major ones. That we've already got an hour until Bondi yeah. has to leave. All right. Oh God, with the whinging. All right, fine. We'll do this really quick. Limited series. I made a story. Mary Vee's down the Queen's Gambit. I'm going to one of Okay, fine. I will not go through all of the rest of these because clearly I am losing my audience. I will say Uzo Aduba uh, was nominated mm. for lead actress in the drama for In Treatment. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on. Are there any? other categories other than the ones that Hamilton is unfairly in that you wish to talk about I mean lead let's just talk about lead actor because it's it's a interesting category you've got lead actor in a limited series or movie so you've got Paul Bettany <laughs> for One Division great I know where this is going Hugh Grant for The Undoing yes Hugh yes. McGregor for Holton and then two Hamilton knobs Leslie Odom yeah. Jr Lin- M- M- Minwell Miranda Leslie Odom Jr is a fucking stratospheric talent but but Ham- yeah. Hamilton shouldn't be in there. And The Undoing. So let me get this straight. So do you know what? No, like, there's no sense of there being any other better actor in any other limited series this year than Hugh Grant in The Undoing. <laughs> Babe, if you asked him, I don't think he played. <laughs> yeah. It was one that of the is, performances yeah. of the year. That is yeah. a fucked up category. I mean, that is it, yeah. it is absolutely shocking, isn't it? And you, that that's where I you think, think Paul Bettany is fantastic in one division. It has to be said. I mean, he was fine. Um, I think he's really Ewan good. Ewan McGregor. I had issues with him in House. I didn't. I think. He, I think. He, I didn't even think mm. he. I think he was all right. But you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's fu- that, and to have no one from Small Axe getting in there, for example, it's and feels, no one from I'd May Destroy You. Yeah. Like. Oh my god, that is ridiculous. It's a, it's a bit of an odd one. That also Don Cheadle. In guest star. Now, I'm not saying Don Cheadle's only on screen for about eight seconds, but he's only on screen for about eight seconds. And uh, what? No disrespect to Don Cheadle, who is amazing generally, but what happened there? Yeah. yeah Just, you know, throwing that out there. The lead actress in the limited series is that's that this category is, um, is unbelievable because we've got Michaela Cole for I'm sure, Cynthia Erivo for Genius Aretha, Elizabeth mm. Olsen for WandaVision, Anya Taylor Joy for The Queen's Gambit, and Kate Winslet for Mary Sound. That's a fucking difficult category. Where do you even go yeah. with that one? Yeah. I, I, mean, I wouldn't even be like powerhouse performances. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely no idea. I couldn't call that. I really no. couldn't. I mean, I'd be leaning towards Kate Winslet personally, but I, I really wouldn't even know where to start. Well, I'd lean towards McKenna um, Cole personally, but yeah. I knew you'd say that, yes. Yeah. Anything else you would like to say before we stop Emmy Talk? Just one more thing, that Poe's got loads and loads of nominations for his yeah. third season. Another show that's taking yeah. an age to arrive here. Why They need to speed this fucking stuff up. It's not like, you know, there's loads of... It's not like there isn't loads of schedules free, you know, to counter-schedule against 
football and Olympics and sport. This is it's taking too long for these shows to arrive. That's my mini rant. Right. Boyd is upset. Yeah. Hurry these things up, please. Yeah. Right. Outside of the Emmys, what has happened this week? There have been two more Game of Thrones shows announced. And at this point, even I'm a bit like, really? What the <laughs> fuck? Like, this is what, eight and nine or something? It's just they're both animated. One's about Yee-T, which is a place in Essos inspired by Imperial China. I mean, will I watch it? I don't know, maybe, but it's, you know, animated. But I just... Of course I, you I, fucking I, will. Let's not pretend. I mean, yeah, but it's just like House of the Dragon I'm into, but I kind of feel like focus on one and make it great. But this this spread betting idea... See, I'm using a sporting metaphor I don't mm. truly understand, but yeah. I'm hoping that it holds. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that they, 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 like back one horse, like just back a show, whereas they're throwing this franchise at the screen in all these different incarnations. And that troubles me slightly. Because I think, A, they'll drown each other out, but also it just, I don't know, it feels like maybe I'm just reading it as a lack of confidence in, in the primary ones, but who knows? I mean, neither of you care either, do you? No. 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 Okay, fine. Well, there are two more animated Game of Thrones shows. And let's move on. What else? Obviously, there will be a second season of Loki, and Kate Heron will not be directing it. Uh, <laughs> her, her quote was particularly funny on this. I'm not returning, Heron said. I always planned to be just on for this. And to be honest, season two wasn't in the dot 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 that's something that just came out and i'm so excited (laughs) (laughs) which i thought was quite interesting why they're swapping up directors because she it's she's been widely praised right yeah i think she she did a fantastic i think she did a great job job. i'd rather they switch out the writer to be honest but that's just me Sorry, God. Sorry. Uh, well, anyway, anyway, she will not be directing when season two of Loki returns, whenever it does. Uh, what else is happening in the world? Well, I want to talk about women. Um, sure. So there were some excellent Twitter threads going on around the middle of last week because there were some particularly depressing statistics going around about um, women and specifically women's writing in TV. So there was, these were the stats doing the rounds, which was across the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Netflix and Sky, only 23% of dramas were written by women in the last five years. Of those, 42% were adaptations, which means only 13% were original stories written by women. Just for comparison with men, they wrote 77% of dramas over the same period and 55% of those were original stories. Only 26% of scripted comedy shows on TV in the same period were written by women. Now, Alice Lowe and Sophie Petzl were really amazing on this on Twitter, actually, kind of digging into the reasons why. Because we see these statistics over and over and over again, and both of them were had real clarity on this. And, you know, they both talked about the fact that there's lots of diversity schemes, there's lots of kind of very visible efforts to get more women writing into TV. But the bit that is still missing is the green lighted bit so a lot of people were saying women get green lit for development but they don't get the green light for production um that women are often put into schemes but that doesn't often then end up in an actual green light alice Lowe was sharing stories about you know what's happened in her career why she hasn't kind of written more well an original show right she hasn't done a yeah, original show for tv which would be amazing and lots of women sharing their stories. And, and Sophie Petzl was basically just saying, you know, this isn't a a dark art commissioning women. You just have to commission women writers and you have to commission them 
to do original stories and lots of people were sharing stories about you know only being perceived as being able to write female stories or being brought in sometimes to re- rewrite a female character in a male script. And it's the same problem in film. We t- we've talked about this on Empire a lot, which is, you know, men are often given, we'll have a film greenlit and they may have only a small indie under their belt or they may have a failed previous film under their belt. That doesn't seem to stop them being greenlit. You know, with women, I remember interviewing Patty Jenkins and she was talking about After Monster, which, you know, Oscar winning film. She couldn't she couldn't get another one of her scripts greenlit. People wanted her to do something just like Monster or wanted her to take somebody else's script. But she said, you think after winning, you know, after your film, your film is Monster, you think that there is no problems getting stuff greenly after that but actually it really is because it's still really difficult for women to get projects original projects greenlit yeah i think i think the mere fact that um alice lowe hasn't had a commission for her own show uh on tv after like films like after prevenge and everything that she's achieved and everything that she uh, that really brought it home to me actually i, mm. I, I was like yeah i mean that to t- for her to come out and, and, and talk about it and say, you know, you know, and it's shocking. It is really shocking, yeah, that someone like her can't get a show greenlit. And I think, as you say, Sophie Petzl's um, brilliantly forthright analysis of it is so, is so good because she, you know, she's, she, she's, she's written some brilliant shows and she's having, mm. you know, she's got a show coming up on ITV. But it is, it is the case that it has to be pointed out because there are lots of very high-profile examples of massive, like I May Destroy, massive phenomenon obviously brilliant, the Michaela Culture Commission, but it kind of obscures the fact that these are exceptions yeah, and that a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, and it is true. I look back, funny enough, at this reading those Twitter threads, I was looking back at, um, you know, all the, I get an email about every single show that gets, UK show that gets commissioned, and, you know, it's fairly easy. I was trawling back, looking at my emails, and I was looking back at, um, you know, um, when Slate announcements from channels and streamers, and it is incredible how... how Dominated is still by men. I mean, that is absolutely a fact. Um, so I think it was it was great. This was this came up. Yeah. But that's a really imp- that's a really good point because right? they were saying you know people go oh well look at I May Destroy You and look at Killing Eve and look, and they hold up and Fleabag you know how many times do people use Fleabag <laughs> to prove yeah. that women's stories are being told and because they are hugely successful and very visible that as to your point completely obscures what is happening actually day in day out and and it makes people think that everything's all right but when you see the the kind of cold hard statistics they are the exception not the rule and that is the bit where it's falling down is at the commissioning stage and the fact that women are still seen inherently as a risky thing and like you're having to take a chance when you think about all of the brilliant female writers that are working today especially in british television um it's kind of extraordinary. This kind of actually ties into the next news item quite nicely. Have you seen the uh, the teaser for Why the Last Man, which starts with a montage of the percentage of various professions which are dominated by men? And it says in terms of CEOs and whatnot. And then, of course, it drops the bomb that they're now all dead. So Why the Last Man, a.k.a. Terry White's Utopia, uh, sees one man and his monkey as the only living Y chromosomes left on the planet. And women dominate the world i'm really looking forward to that as i think i've mentioned before but uh yes indeed eliza clark is showrunner on that um anything else i just was gonna say i thought it was interesting that nicholas cage's tiger king series has been scrapped 
Yeah. Because um, there were two rival, big rival Tiger King mm. dramas, and there's the one with Kate McKinnon and John Cameron Mitchell, and that's going ahead. That's on. That's a Peacock one called Joe Exotic. But the Tiger King one called Tiger King with Nicolas Cage as Joe Exotic, as, and I think it's good. I think it's really good. But I, I feel sorry for anyone who was gearing up to work on it and everything. But I think when you have multiple multiple projects about the same thing, I think you do sometimes need to sit back and go, do we really need to mm. multiple versions of this fucking story that we're all seeing anyway, the epic Netflix series, documentary series. So I think it actually made sense to kind of give but up, give up on it. Didn't everyone want to see Nick Cage yes. as Joe Exotic? Yes, of course we did. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We can deal with it. Okay. I think that's it for news. So let's move on to the reviews this week. And first up, we have the surprise return of In Treatment. Uh, this is an HBO show that began all the way back in 2008 when it aired five nights a week with Gabriel Byrne's therapist seeing a different patient each night and then seeing his own therapist on the Fridays. Uh, at the tail end of last year, they did announce that the show would be making a return, specifically dealing with the trials of pandemic life. Uh, and this began, I think started airing in the States in May. Uh, and this fourth series, it's kind of a soft reboot. This sees Orange is the New Black's Uzo Aduba as Dr. Brooke Taylor and takes a similar format but over four nights so she sees three patients a week and then deals with her own shit on the fourth day um terry what did you make of in treatment so i haven't watched any of the previous seasons um but i suppose that doesn't really matter given what we've said because no. it not only has a new and by the way i do now want to go back and watch it because i'm obsessed with gabriel Byrne, um mainly hmm. because of stigmata but that's an entirely different <laughs> podcast so, i mean that's just deranged amazing film so it not only has a new um lead as you said with um uzo aduba but also new showrunners um so jennifer sure who did big love and my brilliant friend and joshua allen who did empire um so I can't tell you, if you have watched previous seasons of In Treatment, I can't tell you if that gives it a different feel, if that makes it better or worse. I am just judging on the first two episodes that I've seen of season four. Now, obviously the big change um, with this season is the impact of COVID. And you especially see that in the first episode, which is done entirely remotely. That one is with Eladio, who is played by the amazing Anthony Ramos um, from Hamilton in The Heights, A Star is Born. Um, he basically plays a carer for a really rich family's son, and he comes to her with insomnia. The second patient is Colin um, John Benjamin Hickey, who is a guy who's just been paroled from prison, is relying on her to basically say, He's not going to hurt himself or anybody else. He's really rich and privileged and quite irritating. And then the third one, which I didn't see because I only saw the first two episodes, is Layla um, Quintessa Swindell from Euphoria, who is brought in by her nana after she comes out um, and they believe she's chosen, in inverted commas, to be gay. And then, as you say, the fourth episode is Brooke getting her own episode. And in these first two episodes, you're given kind of flashes of a little bit of fucked upness in her life. So it's weird because you do have this very basic setup, which is the session. You are essentially kind of eavesdropping on this session. And the format from the two I've seen seems to be the same, which is her meeting the patient and it's just following the session. That's it. So it's kind of like theatre. It's actually really like theatre because it's really pared back. There's not there's not multiple locations. It's like a, it looks like a theatre set. Very simple from a filmmaking perspective. You've got shot, reverse shot. Like there's there's no kind of 
not much outside of that. And that basically puts all of the pressure on the writing and the performances because there's no kind of, you know, there's no fucking snazzy thing going on over here that's going to distract from. It's all about the way these two people interact with each other, what they say, what they don't say. And I have to say, it's all a bit tiring and a bit boring. So I I found <laughs> episode one really hard to get through. And that is, is let me make the point that they these are amazing actors. Like they have people who are literally at the top of their game. Uzo Aduba is just absolutely amazing as she is in everything she is absolutely stellar but she does not from the two episodes i've seen have much to work with there is this undercurrent of stuff that's going on in her own life she makes a bit of a questionable decision in the first episode that kind of has you questioning you know what is going on with her she's clearly something's a bit off um but other than that she doesn't have much to work with and it's the same really for Anthony Ramos, who I think's incredible. I think he's such a massive talent. But it's the whole the whole conceit is so simple. You know how people say going to therapy is knackering, like it's dead tiring, kind of emotionally, and how it, that's how I felt watching this. I felt like I'd been to therapy and had to sit and go through that and like I found it quite exhausting and uh, dramatically really disappointing. As I say, I think that's just the nature of the format. I don't see what more they could have done from a performance perspective. But for me, the inherent kind of tedium is baked in to the format and, and it constrains everything. And And the writing is fine, I suppose. But I just, I mean, I got really distracted. I kept having to remind myself. Self to go. I kept rewinding it because I kept drifting off and thinking about like pizza. <laughs> but so, so I this did not this did not float my boat. And I was tempted to go back and watch Gabriel Byrne one and see if that kind of did but but uh no, I just I found it incredibly tiring and not massively enjoyable. The absolute the absolute fuck up of this series is that episode three is the killer episode. Mm. And episode three introduces the character we will you will care about and you'll want to know more about and who is a gazillion times more interesting than the first two characters that were introduced to. As you say, everyone in it is great. Anthony Ramos is great, but that character, Eladio, is very kind of, I don't know, he's he's just not that, the way he his dialogue is not that interesting, I found. And then you get the, the second guy is just kind of, you know, seems to be a stereotype of a privileged white guy, you know, white collar guy. But you get to the, th but the character of Layla, played by Quintessa Swindell, is fascinating. And she's brought in by her grandmother who launches the episode with the torrent of homophobic bullshit. And the way that, that establishes the situation is fascinating and it's just so much more interesting than everything else that's come before. And the fact there are 24 episodes of this show, right? And there are, and, and, and unfortunately, structurally, each week you see each of these, um, each of these characters, each of the patients, if you like, of, Uz of Uzo, du of Dr. Brooke Taylor. And I'm afraid, because I carried on watching it, and I'm afraid that the, the other two characters carry on being a bit not that interesting. And you, I just want to see a whole series of 
her of, of Layla and the Doctor together because they are their interactions are so much more interesting, and that's the flaw of the show. But you kind of can do that because I remember when oh, the treatment can. first yeah, came around, there can. were people who would only watch yeah. certain nights. Yeah. Like they didn't find some patients interesting, so they would just not watch yeah. that patient. They and do, I think you can. You like can. you could just pick Thursdays for this and just watch those. Sure, they do interweave more though in this the version than the original. And I liked Gabriel mm. Byrne. I thought I watched it for Gabriel Byrne, who I also love absolutely. Mm. Um, but I, they do interweave references to um, her, the Doctor's on-off, on-off boyfriend, who's played by Joel Kinnaman more so her that stuff is interwoven annoyingly as far as i can tell anyway into random episodes so as well so um uh, but yeah I, I would advise i would advise watching episode three if you're if you feel it because i agree with the theatricality i agree that it was a bit dull i agree that the fairly basic i mean w- by the way it helps that her house her ludicrously oh insanely <laughs> yeah. lavish house oh my god it's incredible in the la hills it's like that i mean that helps because it is phenomenal and when and and you know the, the the patients that arrive in person, and uh, there's, there's a funny bit where one of them something was walking around like, "What the fuck is this place? How do you afford this place? What what is the explanation?" Fair enough. Um, so that helps a bit, but yeah, I mean, I agree with Terry, but it's a sh- but the third episode is the one that people need to watch. It's funny you say that though, because a lot of the reviews out of the states were very big on the Eladio episode. They mm. reckon those are the most engaging, those are the best, oh. and that Anthony Ramos was the best patient. I do think because there are different writers for each of the patients, yeah, that the tone varies quite a bit. So I think there may be like it, it becomes a kind of you might gel with one or one might click with you more than another one does weirdly i kind of feel like you almost have to watch the first four because i think you need to get to the her episode in the same way that burn used to see his own therapist on the on the on the Mm. fifth day the fourth day here is all about her stuff so you find out more about her because i think actually brooke is the most interesting character in this and and so much of herself comes out in the session she has with her clients which you could argue is slightly unprofessional but she's dealing with her own shit and it's not until the fourth day that you start to really understand what that is like she's in recovery like her sponsor comes over like you know she's not actually keeping it together her father's recently died so she's dealing with an awful lot of stuff herself and obviously that has influenced how she's dealt with her session like one of the reasons that she has picked up uh, the phone to Eladio when he calls her on that first night is because she has an incident where she had a child when she was very young and it was given up for adoption and she still feels this kind of ache for this missing child and so when this young man who kind of leans on her needs her in the night she answers the phone because in her head there's a weird sort of maternal thing going on there so it's like it's uh-huh. unpacking her stuff as well so I found that quite interesting but you're not wrong you are essentially eavesdropping on people's therapy sessions and they're very organic and they're very believable and actually they're quite interesting looking through the sort of the layers of personality and human nature but it's i mean it's not fucking action-packed is it it's a little bit slow i I enjoyed it more than i think you guys did but uh, i think this is one of these quite niche shows that definitely isn't for everyone like you've either got patience for that and are interested in it or you're not so i kind of think you know watch the first one if it grabs you, maybe plow through the first four and get a feel for the first week. Maybe you'll like Boyd. Maybe you'll, night three will be your jam. There you go. <laughs> that word again. Night lo, night three is your jam. So you'll watch that, and then you can just watch three and four, three and four, three and four. So you get the Brook stuff, and then you get that patience, and you can ignore the other two. I don't know. However you want to watch it, it is entirely up to you. Uh, but it does begin on Sky Atlantic on Monday, the nineteenth of July, at nine p.m. Next this week, 
We have Uprising. This is Steve McQueen's new three-part documentary that takes us back to 1981 and three events that defined race relations for a generation. Uh, in January of that year, there was the new crossfire, which killed 13 black teenagers. In March, Black People's Day of Action, which saw over 20,000 people joining what I believe was the first organised mass protest by black British people. And then in April, the 1981 Brixton riots. Lots to unpack here. Isn't that right, Terry? Yes, yes, yes. So um, this is uh, from Steve McQueen and James Rogan. It's kind of a companion piece to Small Acts, um, which was obviously a drama anthology, and this is documentary, but dealing with a lot of the same events. So we obviously know Steve McQueen, 12 Years a Slave, as well as Small Acts. James Rogan made Stephen the murder that changed the nation, if you remember that. Um, so both absolutely incredible filmmakers. And the skill with which I watched the first episode, as you say, it's split into three. And they, they cover three different events, but all in the same year. Um, so the new crossfire, which is the focus of the first episode, which killed 13 black teenagers. That is episode one from January. From March, you had the Black People's Day of Action, um, first organised mass protest by Black Britons, and then the third is April, and that's the Brixton riots. Um, and obviously, these events are intertwined, and it and it speaks to a particular time in in British history and a particular time for for Black Britons. Um, so I watched episode one, and I think over the entire piece. <laughs> Steve McQueen and James Rogan spoke to not just kind of people who were there. So in this case, survivors of the fire and and family members of the victims, but also political figures, kind of a a wide spectrum of people. Um, I think what he actually said when he was talking about that is that um, we can only learn if we look through the eyes of everyone concerned, which I think is a really interesting approach. But in this first episode, it's mainly told that the interviews are with people who were at the fire and family members of those who lost their lives. But before you get there, they do this brilliant job of setting up the social and political circumstances that surrounded that night because what Steve McQueen is a genius at doing is not just telling you the story of one thing he shows you how that fits into the fabric of society at the time um so in this documentary a lot of it isn't actually about that night they talk about the battle of lewisham which was where black britons fought back against the national front you had and it uses an archival amazing archival news footage in a really powerful way there's a young girl who says to the camera about the National Front, they want someone to blame for what's happening to the country. And I tell you what, if you do not watch this and see direct echoes of what is happening in our country right now, especially after the week we had after the World Cup that we were talking about earlier, some of the rhetoric both from people but also from politicians. So part of the archival footage is footage of Thatcher, who was PM at the time, so a few months after this Battle of Lewisham, um, uh, there were fires being started at buildings and venues used by Black Britons. And it was it cuts to Thatcher and essentially political sympathising. So Thatcher gave this statement where she said, you know, oh, people are worried about an alien culture swamping our country. 
essentially sympathising with the National Front, even though she explicitly says she's not. And said, oh, you know, this is why people are being driven to the National Front, not because they agree with them, but because they're talking about the issues that matter. And it's all of the rhetoric that we've seen since, quite honestly, and, and that are both us and in America, there's some some proper Trumpian phrases in there. There's a bit where, you know, she says, we don't support the National Front, but we have no sympathy with any terrorist group, this kind of both sides thing that you, you know, we all know of the the problems this country has had with racism, but to see that political footage especially used here with such power and to see the direct parallels with some of the rhetoric being used today is really powerful. So there is all this archive news footage, which is great and, and interviews from the time, but the genius in the storytelling of episode one is these interviews with people. They really flesh out these people to be just you learn about their lives and about everything else going in at the time. So you have the very kind of stark political and social context, but then you have this human heart at the, at the center of it. And that is the genius in this. And it's just so respectfully, humanely, brilliantly done. The time that I spent, spent establishing these people, establishing exactly where we were as a country, how we kind of got to where we got to that night. And then the very personal consequences of all of that kind of political rhetoric and all of the events of of the previous few months. And, and that, but what happened that night was a very human, devastating tragedy of 13 teenagers, children, really. Um, so I, I found this impossibly moving so expertly done like it people i don't know if people realize especially with something like this the absolute forensic skill that goes into documentary filmmaking at this level with these kind of stories at their heart the the way they build the context the way that they never forget that fundamentally they're telling a story of real human pain and tragedy but that there is joy within these stories there's you know family and love and everything that makes up life um, I thought this was just brilliantly, brilliantly done, an essential piece of viewing, um, and I can't wait to watch episodes two and three. And something I don't think a lot of people know a lot about as well. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, yeah, I think it's surprisingly, it's because these incidents happened, let's face it, with black British people. That's why that, you know, they haven't, the stories haven't been told very much at all. Um, in the 40 years since since these events happened. And that is one of the shocking elements of the whole series. I think it's brilliant, by the way. So the BBC, you know, they're showing they're showing these three hours, these three hour-long episodes of this of this series on consecutive nights this week. Yeah. Um, which is brilliant. Like devoting prime time, nine o'clock, um, to these things. That and, and I think the BBC's relationship with Steve McQueen forged you know, over his over his um, drama series that kept, that we just talked about in, in not not being awarded by the recognised by the Emmys, the Small Act series, I think is a brilliant thing. And he's talked before about how the only place to do these things is on BBC One because BBC One forget the streamers and the blah blah blah. BBC One can get four, five, six million people watching this stuff nine o'clock on a, on a you know Tuesday night, and that is that is a brilliant thing that they're that they're working together on these things with James Rogan by the way doing a really important job. James Rogan is a brilliant brilliant documentarian. I watched his the, the Steve and the Murder that Changed the Nation, which it, it was all about the context as the title uh, implies. He also did this brilliant series Putin, a Russian spy for Channel Four, which was fascinating contextualizing Putin and how he got to where he got to. 
uh, so I think his role is really important. But as Terry says, just it's all about that contextualizing and showing it shows what it, the weaving in of the Thatcher stuff is fascinating because I lived through that. I remember, you know, I was old enough to remember Thatcher's being, and uh, you know, and what you're reminded of is that not everyone thought this stuff was okay. Not everyone went along with Thatcher saying, you know, we're going to be swamped by immigrants. At one point in, in this, this, this footage of Thatcher saying, we have to stop all immigration, you know? And it's like, I, I remember people being disgusted and outraged by that at the time. And I remember, you know, these, these the, just the, the kind of tissue of racism, the structural racism, to use that phrase that people want to deny now, as again, Terry mentioned about the, 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 the um, parallels with what's going on today. The idea that there isn't this kind of racism now and there aren't people now, you know, we, the only reason Brexit happened, I'll, I'll, I'll launch into a whole tirade, but let's face it, the whole thing about Brexit was the massive, th oh, we can't talk about immigration became a cliche of the last five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years in this country. And now no one talks about immigration. So now it's about well, we need more migration because there are loads of jobs that, 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 that need to be, that need to be done. Anyway, I thought, yeah, this was a, this was a huge achievement and just the human stories of people there, the testimony of ex-police people, how absolutely outrageously, the police were fitting up black people for crimes they did not commit. It was, that was happening. And, and people saw it, and, and there's testimony from ex-police police people talking about that, seeing it before their eyes. It's shocking, it's moving, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's a must-see uh, series. And this is on every night this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, isn't it? BBC yeah. One uh, at 9pm. Finally, this week, all is good with the world. As the saviour of 2020 has returned, the Diamond Dogs are back together and Richmond FC is back on the pitch because Ted Lasso, the football show I never knew I needed, is blessedly back on our screens with Jason Sudeikis once more taking on the moustache of Kansas-born coach Ted, who continues his stewardship of the team, now relegated from the Premiership, in what I firmly believe is the most feel-good show on television at the moment. Now... It's worth talking about this a little bit because I think, Boyd, you and I had the same experience with this show as almost I think everyone else did, where... We thought it was fine. The first episode arrived. It felt a bit inessential. We thought, oh, yeah, we've seen the first team already. This is much the same idea. And then, like Richmond itself, we were kind of slowly won over by Ted's folksy charm until it became this kind of staple of pandemic living. And we couldn't imagine life without Lasso. Would you think that's fair? Yeah, yeah. I um, and also, you know, let's face this is a show based on some NBC kind of promos for the coverage of the Premier League years ago. That, um, yeah. Ted, that Jason Sudeikis did and came up with a character. And um, it was quite broad, you know, vaguely amusing. I remember being resentful they filmed it at Tottenham. That's just my issue with us being an Arsenal fan. Yes, because Spurs were, uh, yeah. were at the heart of it, they wasn't were, it? Yeah. But it was very different. Like, he was a bit abrasive yeah. and jingoistic. Right. Like, he wasn't the Ted was, that we now exactly. have on the screen. He was more, much more of a stereotype um, a, 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 and a cliche than he is now. And, and it's almost, it's quite, I find it quite difficult to explain to people what is so fantastic about this show because you can go on about its positivity and its um, heart and it's warmth and all that, but that makes it sound like it's really kind of, I don't know, annoyingly um, cloying and sentimental, but I don't think it is. It's still sharp. It still has sharpness to it, even though you're bathing in the warmth of its essential <laughs> philosophy, which is that everything can be overcome by people being nice to each other. And can mm. the big, the kind of central thesis really of the whole thing, which I think is fascinating from a sports point of view, is can you coach an A-level, a, a kind of elite team using the principle 
of being kind and decent and not using all those, you know, the old school, you know, in football particularly, you used to get the hair dry treatment was a phrase that, you know, Alex Ferguson would bellow at the players and throw things at them. And, you know, bullying, basically kind of sanctioned bullying was almost a way of life, I think, for top level football. And was probably only stopped being that, that's that the case with that in recent times. And I think Ted Lasso really taps into that but that makes it sound very much like you have to be interested in football. You, of course, don't, as you are the prime example of someone who's not in slightest interest. Indeed. And I think it's it's a celebration. What I love about it, I think, is it's a celebration of decency and humanity and um, positive positivity, which are all things I would normally find irritating. But because the, char- <laughs> because the characters are so beautifully performed and that, that the interactions, are, it's so enjoyable being with them and being among them that that is the triumph of the show. And I also love the fact that every time you think you know how they're going to, they're going to set up a bit of conflict and you think they're going to resolve, they're going to think they're going to play it out over a few episodes and it'll be resolved. They, they don't do it. They always don't do the obvious thing. There's a, for example, there's one of the, there's the irritating character who left the club last season um, who is kind of chucked out? Jamie Tart, played by Phil Dunstone. Jamie Tart. He's the obnoxious egomaniac. He's the he represents the old the style that we're terrible about right at the beginning. The, not this England yeah. team of self-absorbed, rich, wealthy, privileged white guys who have everything and are really obnoxious. But wait, he's brought back, and I won't, so I won't spoil it. But what happens to him isn't at all what you expect to happen. Let me just say that. And they deal with that stuff so well. They so don't do what they, what you expect, and I love that about it. Everyone is brilliant. Jason Sudeikis, Hannah Waddingham, Nick Muhammad, Juno Temple, they are the kind of key players. I love them all. But I have to say that Brett Goldstein as Roy, mm-hmm. the kind of brilliantly sweary, he's, he's now dealing with, the, dealing with the young guy. He's brilliantly sweary in front of her. And there's loads of jokes about the swear, the swear jar and how overflowing it is because he can't basically utter a fucking sentence without swearing. But he is so brilliant at this kind of outwardly harsh, edgy, difficult guy who's absolutely coming to terms with his masculinity without too fine a point in it. He's, his performance is so exquisite. I love him so much in it. I love everyone in it. The episode, there's 12 episodes this time around. The yeah. Christmas episode, oh my God. It's like, it's weird because <laughs> we're going to be watching the Christmas episode in the middle of August and that is insane, yeah. insanely weird. And part of me, I wonder slightly whether they originally planned on having this showing us at the end of the year. And then they thought, oh, no, hold on a minute. We're going to get bazillion Emmy nominations. There's the there's the Euros. There's football coming back to Premier League any, any minute now. We have to have run it now because it's quite a quick turnover. They only finished filming a few months ago, I think. So uh, there's the Christmas episode, which is like one of the greatest. It's like Love Actually. It's like one of the greatest Christmas specials of anything I've seen. It's so brilliantly done. It's so lovable and adorable. Every I absolutely embraced every second of that episode particularly but oh my god it's a joy i love it i can't i could go on about it all day i i am i am with you 100 percent. i like there's a there's a rom-com themed episode rom-communism as uh, as ted calls it which riffs on any number of rom-coms and isn't it is a delight from start to finish it's it is you're, you're right it's hard to pin down what is so good about this show because it's not laugh out loud funny like it's just not what i would call a particularly funny comedy like it doesn't make me laugh but, but it makes me feel good all the way through it, i'm amused all the way through it's like a base level of amusement all the way through which spikes occasionally but it's just there's a feel goodness to it and it's something i think ashton b was talking about last week when she said the thing is that it's not just that we like the character it's that everyone in the show also loves that character like he everyone they don't want to like him they didn't want to like he's incredible incredibly cloying and grating and like his kind of like him um, good old boy 
shtick thing you'd think would get quite tired but it's just really endearing and he's like this bouncing energizer bunny and even like in this and we saw elements of this in the previous season that there's more going on like he has problems at home with his marriage and stuff like that so like you know he has some some issues of his own to deal with it's so much fun watching him interact with the team and exactly as you're saying like Roy Kent and Jamie Tart both those characters kind of leave in the first season but then the way they bring them back into the orbit of the show I think is fantastic I think the new character Dr Sharon played by Sarah Niles from I May Destroy You she's really good I love her dynamic it's kind of this uh, incredibly unreadable stony faced team psychiatrist who is completely immune to Ted's charms and indeed his biscuits uh, which I think is great I like about this we alluded to my little uh, passing metaphor earlier in the show but I like that they bring in the the sort of I won't say the B characters but so we say the secondary characters get more to do so some of the players like um like Tahib Jaimo who plays Sam he gets his own storylines Danny Rojas the sort of star striker character he's the one who leads the first episode I will say I do think that first episode of season two is not the strongest I think the first one is maybe the weakest of the batch that I've seen so I think you know Terry if you only watch the first one I can I can completely understand he'd be like oh really I don't see the joy of this I think it, it builds ahead of steam when it gets from episode two onwards and because it sort of spreads the plot around more because it's not it's not just about the football team and it's not just about that fish out of water thing of Ted himself now because it sort of spreads the storylines out there's so much more for everyone else to do Gino Temple is brilliant in this I love that they've made more of that character as well uh, and also I should say, I mean you only have to look at the um the Emmy nominations to see how good this cast is but jeremy swift who plays kit higgins he has tons more to do uh but i think as as i mentioned in my review and i think boyd you feel the same way nick muhammad is definitely the show's secret weapon he is so low-key fucking hilarious and brilliant everything he does is just deadpan gold uh and i just i think he's magnificent in almost everything he's in but he oh, is yeah. so fucking good on this show uh i love him to bits but terry terry tell us what you thought because you watched the first episode when we reviewed this the first time and you were you were unmoved and i'm assuming you've watched one more how how is the needle has it has it shifted so i watched the first two episodes of season 1 and i just did not get it so the whole fish out of water thing i didn't think it was very funny um i thought it was all really off i couldn't get it and then and it was really weird because i enjoyed all the discourse around it like i enjoyed all the people that i admire and respect loved it like all of the things Boyd talks about, which is the, you know, the kindness and just being a decent human being. And like, I'm, I'm here for all of that. Like I'd spent 20 minutes this weekend reading a Twitter thread of a stranger who'd never seen Ted Lasso, <laughs> just live tweeting her re- responses to it in like a hundred tweet chain. It was the most <laughs> pure and joyful thing I've ever heard. So I'd literally spent 20 minutes of my life doing that for a TV show that I can't get my head around so I watched I did watch the first episode and I just I it doesn't do anything for me and I can't work it out and it's I find it incredibly frustrating because there is no actual logical reason but I so when I when I really connect with the show like feel good motherland this way up like I get this little like tingle I get this little feeling and I don't, I, I've now watched, what, an hour and a half of this in, total, in totality. I had, haven't got a remote tingle at all, but I am not satisfied that it's correct. So what I'm going to do is go back to the beginning of season one 
and forced myself to watch the entire first season, whether I get to season, whether I get to episode four and think I still don't like it or not, I'm going to go and watch the entire first season from scratch and attempt to like it. I don't mind. I don't mind not liking stuff. I don't mind not enjoying stuff that other people enjoy. That is the nature of television. It's subjective. It's all about your own tastes and, and what you connect with and all of that. I think all of that is true, but this leaves me so cold and it and given how it makes everyone else feel, that makes no logical sense. So we're going to do a scientific experiment and see if, if prolonged exposure gives me feelings. It's clinically proven that not liking Ted Lasso means you're a train wrecker of a human being and dead I mean, inside. I don't so, think uh... we need a Ted Lasso to tell us that, but you know. Yeah, yeah. But I do think the more you immerse yourself in it, the, the better it gets. Like I, I, my, my, yeah, my appreciation for it, my love for it, kind of increased exponentially. If that's the right word, as it as it got on by the so it, there are because I had issues. I, have, I think there are some. I think it takes time, its own time to to make sure the characters are believable and real. I mean, even had a, Hannah Waddington's character for a long time, the owner of the club, I felt was a little yeah. bit one-dimensional in the first half of- In season in one, season yeah. One. Not, and not it kind so of takes, a, And it's almost like her arc by the end of it is so really important because then she, from then on, she's fantastic. So I think there are, you know, it's not perfect, but I do think the more you spend time with it and the more to mother, the more you will love it. I, my prediction is by the time you finish this experiment, you will be on board. And a better human. <laughs> I mean, let's not- God, hang on. Feelings is one thing. A better humans is quite something else entirely. Yeah. Let's not get carried away. It makes all of us better humans. The, his innate tedness will make you a better human. That's 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 guaranteed. Anyway, that does arrive on Apple TV Plus on Friday, July the twenty third. But there are other things out this week, of course. Not not least of all, season three, season three of New Amsterdam, which is still going. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> which is on Sky Witness and comes on the twenty first. It mo- it's moved. It's it didn't used to be on Sky Witness. It was on some other channel, wasn't it? And now it's moved to Sky Witness. Yeah. Anyway, just saying. I don't remember where it was. Yeah. I didn't care then, and I no. don't care now. Yeah. Um, Turner and Hooch comes to Disney Plus on the twenty first as well, which is the TV reboot of the Tom Hanks movie about a US Marshal and his slobbery dog. Uh, we nearly reviewed that this week, but you know, didn't. Uh, Blackish season seven comes to E four on the twenty second. Deception. Do you know anything about Deception Boyd, um, which comes to Alibi yeah, on the twenty third? Only that it comes to Alibi on the twenty third, and it stars um, Jack Cotmore Scott, who was apparently was in Tenet as um, a superstar magician who works for the FBI. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Oh, and Vinnie Jones um, is in it. Fuck's sake. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kevin Smith's He-Man show, his anime He-Man show, Masters of the Universe Revelation, comes to Netflix on the 23rd. I really wanted us to review that, and then I forgot all about it. So mm, that's thank God. upsetting. Uh, but much as I don't like animation or sci-fi, it's He-Man! Oh, and it's Kevin I Smith. I really good from the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, and it's Kevin Smith. But I was I was quite sold on that. I really wanted to watch it. But hey-ho, what are you going to do? Anything else, Boyd? Or is that well, there it? is Sexy Beasts, which I mooted for full-on <sighs> review. Which you is the, did, didn't you? Yeah, just because it's like it's like the kryptonite of uh, of you, basically. I, I would imagine it is. it's a dating show that you would have seen the trailers. It's a dating show where everyone wears. It's basically the Masked Singer, ludicrous fucking masks. People wearing ludicrous fucking masks. Elaborate, by the way, kind of complicated mask 
covers created by latex and makeup and etc and they date it's basically they're dating and one person dates so one woman would have a date with three the ultimate blind date with three people in, they're all in masks and then she picks one of them based on their personality and how they reacted and then they're unveiled and it's like does you fancy them after that it's it's it, 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 i mean you all hate it but it is fascinating <laughs> on one level um and all I would say is that I think Terry might quite enjoy it as well because it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is ridiculous. It was an old. It's been. It was on BBC three years ago, as I mentioned when it was just a news story. But they brought it back in a kind of international way. So one of the most interesting things about it is American women dealing with British men. That's in the first episode, and I found that quite interesting. That's out on Wednesday on Netflix. Wednesday on Netflix. <laughs> if you feel the need, if you feel the need. Right. What is our pick of the week? Uh... Ted Lasso. Mm, uprising Ted uprising for, me. for Terry Ted for Boyd and Ted for me Ted Lasso all the way and that's it for this episode of the Pilot TV Podcast if you have no other plans today then please find your way to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five star rating and if you'd like to do the same for our self esteem then please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at James C. Dyer at Terry underscore White slash at Terry L. White and at Boyd Hilton. Uh, next week, I fear Terry may well force us to review Law and Order: Organized Crime. So that's something to uh, to look out for. Uh, but in the meantime, if you will excuse me, I have a date with the Dylan Panthers and a big sack of Friday Night Lights episodes to watch. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Pilot out. Mm-hmm.